Okay, today's reading comes from um, hold on, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1 to 15. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, through obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, (coughs) for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Let's come to God in prayer. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you that we can come into your presence through the work of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your plan of salvation before time began, which reaches forward and stretches forward to today that today is the day of salvation, where you are drawing sinful men and women and boys and girls into your kingdom through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that in him we have forgiveness of sins and we come to worship you because of what you have done for us. And Lord, at the high point of our worship now, as we submit to the authority and teaching of your word, We ask that you would open our hearts, give us teachable and obedient spirits, and instruct us. And Lord, for those outside of your kingdom, we do pray that you would be at work, calling them irresistibly to come and repent and put all their trust in a loving Saviour. May that be the joy and experience 
of some here this morning. Amen. What is your hope in life? What's your hope in life? Hope, when we use the word, well, it can sound very often a bit vague, can't it? It reflects a level of uncertainty that we feel. I hope to have good health. I might not. might get sick. I hope to get a good job. But the person who went into the interview before me, well, they look smarter. They probably are. I hope to have a happy and a successful life. But it doesn't always work out. So what is the certainty and the conviction of the hope that you have this morning? And how confident can we be of the outcome of what we want? Peter's first letter was written from prison in Rome. Peter was locked up for proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the face of it, Peter had every reason to be hopeless, didn't he? But in 1 Peter chapter 1, we find that Peter has a real hope, a living hope. He shares his confidence in a hymn of praise, which starts in verse 3. Let me read it to you again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So hope, as Peter used the word here, is hope as an expectation. And why was that? Why could Peter have a sure expectation rather than something vague and uncertain? Well, Peter's sure trust and confidence and his patient waiting were based on the solid facts of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Something of which Peter himself was an eyewitness. He had seen it, and that was the seed of his confidence. So this morning, our message is a real hope in a hopeless world. It is the Christian hope. And we have three headings. The first is no hope. The second is living hope. And our last heading is eternal hope. No hope, living hope, and eternal hope. So in this letter, Peter is writing to Christians who need encouragement in the difficulties of living for Christ now, today. They needed an assurance that they're not losing out in their sacrificial service of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you are a Christian, and I'm sure many of you are, I want to encourage you in this real hope this morning. And if you're not a Christian or not yet a Christian, then I want to challenge you to think hard about what your hope is, both in life and also in death. So to understand this real hope, we must first admit that in ourselves we are hopeless. We have no hope. And that's our first heading. No hope. Well, hearing that we are hopeless is a big blow to our pride. Perhaps it's already pressed a button for you. Hopeless? You don't even know me. Well, let's go back to the beginning. That's always the best place to start, isn't it? When God made humanity, mankind, the human race, he made us with the possibility of the first man and woman living forever. It was a possibility. They were made perfect. There was no death to fear. But the sinful disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, has brought death, not just to them, but to all their descendants. That's you and I. First, spiritual death. And then, physical death. And to be spiritually dead is to have a broken relationship with God. Perhaps you've heard someone say this. I hope it's never been said to you, or perhaps I hope that you've never said it yourself. Have you ever heard someone say, you're dead to me? I read a sad story about two sisters. One of them had a little boy. His name was Joseph. And she was unable to provide for her, her son, so she gave him to her sister, his, uh, who, was, who cared for him. So he was cared for by his auntie and his grandmother. When he was only three years old, little Joseph went to stay with his, 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 his birth mother and stepfather. And in that short time, they horrifically abused him and they killed him. And outside the court, after her sister's conviction for murder, Joseph's aunt said this. She said the way her sister and brother-in-law had treated the child was beyond forgiveness. And then in a tribute to her nephew, she condemned her sister. She said she stopped being your mother. And it was the moment that I decided that she was dead to me. That's dreadful, isn't it? Being called dead to somebody. Gone. But there, in that tragic story, we have a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the outrage of offence that leads to a relationship 
being shut down. But how much greater then? How much greater is that offence between a rebellious sinner and an offended holy God? How much greater? But worse is to come. Just as that woman had to face the consequence for failing to love her child and her terrible offence towards him, we too must face the consequence of our sins, of our rebellion towards God, of our failure to love him and to live for his glory and not our own. And just like that woman, we too are undeserving of any compassion or forgiveness from God. We deserve only God's righteous and just anger. And the Bible, in fact, Jesus himself in the Bible is very clear what that means. It means eternal punishment in hell. There is a consequence And it's here where Peter starts. He says, in his great mercy. You see, it's here, if you like, at rock bottom, where we have no hope that God has stepped in. Mercy is the moral quality of feeling compassion, especially of showing kindness towards someone in need. And that's exactly what God has done. He has shown compassion. He has shown kindness. And what was our need? Well, our need was of life. We were dead. We needed spiritual life. Because we were dead and without hope. So let's pause. Let me ask you. Are you too good for grace? Are you too good for grace? Are you too good a person to have to rely on God's mercy and his compassion? Or have you admitted that that's exactly what you need? That's humbling, isn't it? Or are you too bad? You could be sat there thinking, well, you're right in what you said there at the beginning. It's what the Bible tells us. You just don't want to know what I've done. No, I don't. But God does. He already knows. So don't think... Don't sit there thinking, I'm too bad. Do you believe that God will forgive you? You see, we must neither underestimate either God's holiness on the one hand or his forgiving love and mercy on the other. It's his holiness that exposes our sins. But it's God's forgiving love and mercy, which is the glory of his compassion. And if you are a Christian, 
then you will have a testimony of that but God moment when you've personally tasted of God's love and mercy. The Apostle Paul had that. He describes it in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. I'll read it to you. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Can you say that? Does that not just ring in your ears, does it resonate in your heart? It's in Jesus where God meets sinners at our point of greatest need. Our need of life. And that brings us to our second heading, which is living hope. Peter tells us that God has given us a new birth. Whatever does that mean, new birth? Well, perhaps if you familiar with John's Gospel, you'll remember the top Jewish religious leader with the strange name, Nicodemus. He knew that Jesus had come from God. He was able to recognise that Jesus had come from God. But at the same time, Jesus didn't meet his own expectation of what the Messiah would be. A Jewish king restoring the kingdom of Israel. So when he came to talk to Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus went directly to his great need. The need of spiritual life. Life to be part of God's kingdom. And Jesus said this to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's what Jesus said. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And how did Nicodemus respond? Well, he took it literally and he appeared to be insulted. Well, I'm supposed to go back in my mother's tummy And get born again. Remember, he was the top religious teacher. Was Jesus off the mark here? Well, of course he wasn't. Jesus' analogy was perfect. You see, none of us played an active part in our birth, did we? We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose when. We didn't choose our own birthday, did we? We didn't choose where. When it happened, it was something that happened to us, didn't it? And receiving a living hope through spiritual life in the new birth, is something that God must do for us. We cannot choose if, 
or when. And we certainly do not contribute. It's a choice made by God of his electing grace and love. Those who God chooses, he causes to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And that can be difficult. Perhaps it's difficult for you. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh yeah, that's exactly the problem. Because I don't know whether I've been chosen or not. To which I'd like to very respectfully and gently say this. Dear friend, if that's you, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You see, it's not our concern to ask whether I've been chosen by God. That's in God's mind from eternity past. But there is a question for us to ask, and it's this. Have I believed? You've heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ crucified on the cross with his arms open to receive sinners. The only question that concerns us is, have I believed? You see, Nicodemus was very confused. He had to understand that Jesus came to be more than a good example. More than just an earthly king. And Jesus explained this to him using the Old Testament story of Moses and the bronze serpent. We can read about it in Numbers 21. But I'll tell it to you as Jesus told it in, to Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus said this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That's what we must do. We must believe in Jesus. Believe that he came to die. That he came to be lifted up on the cross for all to see. And to look by faith. And to see him as my saviour. He's my saviour. It was for my sins he died. God gives new life, spiritual life, to those he chooses. But how could God do that and still be and remain being a righteous and just and a holy God. Well, mercy and forgiveness have come at a cost. They have come at a cost. Our sins are not just brushed under the carpet, however convenient that would be for us. No. God's justice demands that they must be punished. And someone had to pay. 
And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's died on the cross, bearing the sins of his people. Not his own sins. By his death, he paid in full the price of sin. But how do we know that Jesus' sufferings, his death, his blood poured out, how do we know that that was enough to satisfy God's wrath? Well, it's there in our text. Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was Jesus' resurrection that demonstrated God's acceptance of his sacrifice. Payment for sin was paid in full and accepted. And Jesus was raised to life. Not just the life he had before. He rose in power with a glorious new body and a new quality of life. One perfectly suited for fellowship and obedience to God forever. And he's ready to pour that same life-giving power into those who believe through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, just as our hopelessness came from one man, Adam, so our living hope, our new life, comes from one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're coming up to Christmas again. I'm pleased to say I love Christmas. One of the things I love about Christmas is hearing Handel's Messiah. It even makes it onto some of the mainstream radio stations. And there we have, in Handel's Messiah, a glorious chorus based on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22. Listen out for it this year, when you hear the Messiah. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The, new, the living hope that Jesus brings gives true immortality. Eternal life starts now for those who believe. We don't get the new body yet, but our spirits are made alive with resurrection power. And the confident effect of the Christian's living hope is both now and not yet. There's a tension there. And it's fine, we can keep that tension. It's both now and not yet. Our living hope through the resurrection of Christ now is as the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from, dead, from the dead. In this life, whilst we remain here, we are constantly dying to ourselves in our sufferings. 
whatever they may be, whatever God brings for us. And yet, in our sufferings, we are overcoming through Christ's power, working in us through the Holy Spirit. This is the power to live a holy life that pleases God, to gain the victory over sin, to live out the exhortation at the end of our reading that we might be holy as God is holy. But at the same time, in Romans 8 verse 24, the Apostle Paul joins living in the Spirit with a hope that is not yet, that is to come. A hope that's beyond this life. He says, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what he already has? We see his logic, don't we? If we've got it, we're not hoping for it. But there's something to come, isn't there? And it's this, it's the, it, it's, it is this that's the power that enables suffering believers to persevere until that future hope appears. So we've seen how the Lord Jesus brings us from no hope to a living hope. And that is the eternal hope, which is our final heading. Eternal hope. The reality is that unless Jesus returns first we will all face death. Now, according to the website, deathclock.com, and I'm I'm not advising that any of you go to this website, but I did, only for the purpose of an illustration, for the benefit of you, brothers and sisters, this morning. I went there and I offered my personal details on deathclock.com, and I received back the day on which I'm going to die. It is the 22nd of January, 2046. Now, don't go there yourself. I went there because I, frankly, don't care less for what they are telling me because it is only a statistical calculation. It is almost certainly wrong. And if we're all around in 2046, we'll see what happens on the 22nd of January. But what is not wrong, what is not wrong, is that one day I will have an appointment with death. On Monday, just gone, for the first time in my life, I missed a doctor's appointment. And I was pretty upset about it. Don't like people missing appointments. Circumstances meant that I missed the reminder that I'd set. By the time I realised it was gone. But my appointment with death is an arrangement from which I will not be able to absent myself. It will come to me as surely 
as it will come to you. And its inevitability is so sobering, isn't it? It is. But the Christian anticipates future immortality. Yes, we will die physically. That part of us, which is our body, will die. But we will not. We will not die. The old tent, affected by sin, that will die. But we will not die. And when Jesus returns, we will be reunited with our resurrection body to a living hope. And so in championing this real hope, this living hope, Peter alludes to an inheritance reserved in heaven. It's there in our passage, isn't it? But let's not think that that's going to be in some ethereal state as as a disembodied ghost. There are lots of people who think like that, even Christians. No. Peter's speaking about an inheritance. An inheritance for the Jew was connected to the land. It spoke of permanence, of security, of provision. And sadly, these things proved to be uncertain and insecure, vulnerable to loss from marauding nations. But what Israel had had uncertainly in the land the Christian finds with a certain confidence and assurance in their new living relationship with Christ. It's a real hope. The inheritance the children of God anticipate is both spiritual and tangible. Spiritually made perfect and holy. In Christ, fit for eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. But also to take our place in the new earth, a tangible reality. You see, we must not forget that when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection redeemed the whole creation. The entire cosmos will be freed from the corrupting effect of death and sin when Jesus returns. That's why it's groaning in anticipation. Well, what does that mean? Well, friends, what it means is that the Christian's real hope is more tangible, far more tangible than a vague idea of sitting on a cloud, plucking a harp, or whatever you think comes next. No, there are good biblical arguments that suggest that the new earth will be this earth, cleansed and restored and populated with the people of God, saved by Christ. So the Christian's real hope takes us from no hope to an eternal hope. And if that's your hope, 
there is every reason to praise and worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So before we close, let me ask you another question. How generous are we with our praise? How generous are we with our praise? If this is our hope, how generous are we with our praise to God? Great sinners need great mercy. But a small view of our sins and a small view of God's holiness will mean a small view of God's grace and mercy. And if this is not your hope, then what are you hoping in? What are you hoping in this morning? Wherever you place your confidence and your trust to underpin your life will never meet your greatest need. And it will never extend into eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ offers real hope in a hopeless world. A new life and restored relationship with God through forgiveness of sins. Have you believed? Have you come to Christ confessing your sins, confessing your need and believing in what he's done for you. Well, if you haven't, then quietly turn to Jesus now. Ask his forgiveness. Trust in his salvation, that he's won for you on the cross and you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Now, gracious God, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for this real hope in a hopeless world. We thank you that you've shown it to us through your word, that you've revealed it personally through your Holy Spirit. And we ask now that it would be the hope of all who hear this morning to the glory of your name and the extension of your kingdom. Amen.